Well, this morning we're going to continue our series on what we're calling Lessons from an Iron Man. And I hope that you've been uh, enjoying the journey that we've been on. Uh, we've, uh, th- it really is an, in, uh, an interesting story how God allowed me to participate in an Ironman this summer. And uh, during that, and for those of you that are new, uh, during that event, God really uh, gave me an awakening uh, to what he wanted for us as a church in the series coming off of sabbatical. And, um, and so I've just been uh, grateful, just kind of asking God to lead us and guide us each and every week. We started the series off talking about fear. And, uh, you know, when you face an Iron Man type of uh, event, certainly there's some fear around that. But the reality is there's fear that we all face in our lives. And we have got to learn to manage our fear. We've got to learn to face our fear and not run from that. And uh, that is really, really important for us. And uh, and so we kind of started there. The second week, we talked about having a plan. We talked about the race. And we said, uh, you know, that there is an importance to saying, all right, there's got to be uh, a, a, a blueprint for our lives, something to follow. And we need people in our lives to speak into our lives, kind of like this, uh, this uh, Ironman coach that worked with me and, and uh, even with Amy as she shared her Ironman story on that day, um, how God used someone else from the outside perspective to speak into my life, into Amy's life concerning the race. But the truth is we need that in our lives. We all need a coach. We all need someone to walk with us, and we also, we also need to realize that we can be a coach for someone else. We don't have to be perfect. We don't have to wait till we're, we got everything figured out. Uh, we can provide that for someone, and it can certainly be a blessing. And so that was week two. And then last week, we talked about head games. And uh, if you were here this, uh, this last week, we talked about our emotions and how, we, how do we control our emotions, how do we give those to the Lord. And we talked about taking captive every thought, right, and then not only only do we do that? We need to resist the devil. Uh, we need to submit to God, and then we need to transform our mind through the renewing of the Word of God. And uh, and so we need to uh, manage our emotions. And how important is that? Well, coming up to today, uh, we're going to talk about pain. And as we were, as I was p- praying and planning this service. Uh, really from sabbatical at the end of my sabbatical and then kind of in into um into my re-entry into work is there was an opportunity that that kind of emerged that i just really believed was from the lord and we're going to participate in something this morning a little bit different um this morning we're going to i'm going to introduce a guest speaker to you that has lived a life uh that has some very very deep painful uh parts um, and the Lord has used these painful moments in his life to bring um, victory, to bring uh, hope uh, to others. He, God has used his story. Um, and the reality is his story is our story. And the details may be different. But this morning, I want you to, uh, to really be open to what the Lord has. Um, the, the topic, the idea of pain is not easy to share on. And, um, you know, and, and as I was thinking about this, we had kind of planned this and already put out the promotion. And that's when Kevin and I connected. Um, and when I heard his story, I said, I said, hey, let me pray about this. Um, and I, then I invited him to be here this morning. 
Um, but I, I kind of felt like, you know, the church, the, you know, I'm pretty transparent week in and week out in my preaching, and I've shared some painful things that have uh, happened in my life. But to heck, to come from it from a different perspective, I believe that God wants to speak to us this morning. And so I'm going to say a quick prayer. There's an introduction into to Kevin and to who he is and uh, some of the adventure that he's been on and some of the journey. And then he's going to come and share. And uh, we're just going to uh, let our hearts be open to what God has for us this morning. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we just give you this time. We just ask, God, that you would be speaking loud and clear, that you would use Kevin in a mighty way, use his story. And, God, we just ask that as we approach the end of the service, God, that our response would be the appropriate response for our situation. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Good morning. Sounds like a normal adventure, right? something you wake up and you do every day, you just, well, I want to look for Noah's Ark. So um, there's two videos there. I think you guys might have shown the other one last week, and I do those two back-to-back because um, in many ways that feels a lot like light. But before I get any further, I want to thank you, Ben, for opening up uh, your pulpit here this morning. So uh, it was just really great getting to know you in the recent uh, couple of months here, and I just pray and trust that God will use some of the parts of my story to maybe minister to some of you as well. So uh, kudos for you for taking the risk. I appreciate that. Um, But here's what we're doing with these two stories. So you've got one story that's on the front end of this. It's actually the movie trailer, and it's explicit, and it's uh, obvious. There's a bunch of guys, and you can question their sanity, and you can probably do a psychoanalysis on all of us and question our sanity in the process. But the story is there. The narrative is very obvious. These are a bunch of guys, a collective group of people, from professors to geologists to geoengineers to uh, archaeologists and then a couple yahoos like me that have some previous climbing experience or polar extreme conditioning and so we're there to keep these really smart guys alive you can question the sanity of all that but we're looking for something right we're looking for this ark we're looking for this ship it's up on top of a mountain we want people to come to the movie theater we want them to take them along the journey with us we want to help them discover what we discovered and each man walks away with something different in his own heart And that's a lot of the ways uh, that our life, I think, feels like. It's like, wow, this is the narrative of our life. We do certain things every day. We have a certain pattern. Change comes very difficult, especially as we get older. We get in these ruts. We get in these little patterns, even in our own spiritual walk. And so we have a lot of things that are very repetitious, very obvious. Uh, We're a father. We're a husband. uh, We're a wife. We're a mother, grandmother, grandfather. We go to work. We make money. We go to church. We tithe. We give back to the community. We go to sporting events. All this stuff. And that's this narrative that is very obvious, and it's where most people, quite frankly, kind of park their their car at. And they just feel like it's just kind of here, and it's now, and we get this 70, 80-year window or thereabouts, and we do what we got to do, and then who knows what happens in the afterlife. And so you have this sense of what Thoreau talked about, this quiet desperation that tends to invade our lives where we're just kind of going through this ritual but we feel in many ways like there's some other narrative, there's some other story that's below the surface, and we can't quite access it, but we see it, and we often see it in movies. We often see it in moving images. We see it in our culture at large. We see it in books. We see it in life events, and it just feels like as you go through life, you're just kind of collecting a lot of dots, right? So all these pixels are running throughout your life, And they're just kind of random, and you're collecting them, and you can't really figure out what's the story here, what's happening in this story. And then you have these divine moments, these moments of epiphany where you have that thin place. The Celtic Christians called it a thin place, and it's where essentially heaven invades earth. 
and everything can happen in that thin place because the weight of eternity comes down. It compresses the timeline, and then anything can happen. So demons come out of people. People get healed. People can speak in tongues. All kinds of crazy stuff happens in that thin place because all of a sudden the timeline has just been basically compressed. And you're like, wow, that was really cool. What happened? But that doesn't happen every day. You don't wake up every day and look for Noah's Ark. You don't wake up every day and just be surrounded with miracles. I mean, when Jesus showed up on the scene, all these people were, they were thirsting because they had mythology and they had uh, religion. I mean, they had religion up to here. But here comes this guy and he's telling stories that people never forget. And everywhere he's going, he's not really asking people to fill out a resume or, or do you know who I am or do you believe in me? He just healed people. I mean, it was crazy. Like, what can I do for you? And so it was amazing. All these lepers are running around, and everybody has to run away, and they're all in these colonies, and Christ just goes to these people, and he touches them, and he kisses them on their wound. And so he's doing everything counter-opposite of what the Pharisees are doing. And he's making this, this, uh, this sub-narrative become very obvious and very explicit. And so I think in many ways our lives feel like just a pattern of, of, of stuff that we do every day, but yet we can kind of sense deep underneath, and every once in a while it gets tapped into, we feel like, you know, there's got to be more than life, and there has to be more to my story. And so I think what happens is, is as you start asking those questions, and you can actually encapsulate that search or that mystery in Proverbs chapter 25, verse 2, where it talks about how the glory of God is the secret, but the glory of kings or queens or people or children or whomever is the search. So God creates this mystery, this divine romance, this sacred romance, and he puts these secrets along the trail of your life. And the glory of your life, the nobility of your life, becomes the search. And along the way, a whole bunch of people become savages because they can't unravel what that secret is. So they pray, and something doesn't happen. I can't tell you the number of people that I meet, and I'm sure Ben does, and anybody that's in ministry. There is a huge mass of people out there that are not in this building here today in probably a 10, 15, 20-mile circuit radius that at one point prayed for something, and it didn't go the way it should have happened or the way they thought it would have happened. And if they were God, they wouldn't have answered that prayer in that way. That person wouldn't have died, or that situation wouldn't have happened or they would have been able to keep their money, or they wouldn't have gone through a divorce, or somebody wouldn't have, have uh, died of cancer, all these things. And so we just basically put ourselves in the position of God, and you're like, well, I prayed that, and if it didn't play out the way I wanted it to play, or the way I think God should answer that, I'm out of whatever this thing is called Christianity or spirituality. And they're bankrupt, and they're empty, and they're desperate, and they're trying to find the same thing that we're trying to find. And so I have found that the people on the streets, a lot of the homeless people actually, a lot of them are brilliant. If you actually had a conversation with them, you'd be amazed that they're really kind of like us. They just had a couple of things happen so quick and in such a, uh, a pronounced way that it overthrew their mind. And they're just wandering around. And they're, they're, they're houseless. I guess in some ways you can almost say they're, they're soulless. So what do we do? What do we do with this search? So I'm on this mountain and I'm going there year after year. I'm on this five-year quest. I thought every year was going to be the final year. And we had all these technical eyewitnesses that were telling us, hey, there's something on the mountain. We had this guy who was a remote sensory expert, and he's an atheist, so he doesn't really believe in the Noah's Ark story. He relegates it to, you know, a nursery rhyme or the church nursery theme or some animal shelter somewhere. So for him, it's just this fable. It's just this little myth that is kind of interesting. But he's looking through his remote sensory intel, and he's saying, hey, I, I can tell there's something on top of the mountain. It shouldn't be there. 
It looks as if some spaceship or something landed on top of the mountain. It's buried in the ice. It's in a couple of pieces. We see a spectral trail leading from the main place to another piece to another piece. I don't know what it is, but you're not going to find out what it is unless you put boots in the ground and you start drilling and start excavating and actually start seeing what perhaps this anomaly is. Now, that's inflammatory language. All right. I mean, I, I first heard of one of the Ark explorers back when I was 12 years old on the Jersey Shore. Colonel James Irwin, he was one of 12 astronauts, so you had the 12 apostles, right? They're the guys that hung around Christ. There's only 12 guys that landed on the moon. So wherever he speaks, people are like, wow, what was it like? You know, and he talks about the, 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 the planet just being like a marble suspended in space, and it looks like all the other planets are, are some cosmic Christmas tree, and God just flung them out there, and they're just spinning in, in this orbit, and it's just mind-blowing. You know, you can put your, your thumb on the planet, and you're walking on the moon and he's only one of these 12 guys so he's like he's like the guy and I'm listening to him and I'm 12 years old and I'm on the Jersey Shore growing up in New Jersey and we're in this big huge building it's called the Great Auditorium it was part of the the Methodist movement the camp meeting movements and so this thing at one time sat 10,000 people and now it's down to like 6,300 or something because they have theater style seatings but it feels like I'm in an ark old wood dusty smell the sun's coming through all the colored windows at the top so you can almost imagine that that's the top of the ark and the lights coming through the rafters and the golden pipes are in there and the choir singing and then this astronaut comes up on stage talks about going to the moon and then he switches topics i'm 12 years old i already have add my imagination is going in a hyperdrive and then he jumps to oh i'm gonna look for the ark and i'm like that's the craziest thing i've ever heard of but my mind is just going wow something leapt out 12 years old I want to be a part of that someday. I can't believe that we're here. I told my mom about it. I says, am I remembering this correctly? She says, oh, yeah, sure. My mom says everything. She's part of that generation. So she's like, oh, here's the bulletin from that morning. This is like August the 3rd, 1980, right? So she pulls it out, shirt up, there's his signature. And then I remember, yeah, wow, we were in line, waited for two hours, got to shake the hand of an astronaut, one of only 12. And he's like one of the apostles. This is crazy. So that seed is planted. I don't know how it fits into my story. But that seed is planted, and I don't know how it's going to play out. I just think, well, it's a random event, and it's just one of those things that just kind of happened. But wow, that was really strange. So that's 1980, 12 years old. Further accelerate the story to February 23rd, 1998. I'm preaching at an AG church in Detroit Metro area. I'm one of the associate guys, and life is good. I'm a national consultant for the Assemblies of God denomination, so they fly me around. I talk about this wonderful thing called postmodernism, and so it's real cerebral, and it's fun, and you can consult, and you can talk, and you meet all these really crazy, cool people. And I've got a business that I've started up, and so i got employees, and then I'm doing this thing at the church and doing all this networking in the Detroit and Ohio and all these different areas. So things are really going well. I'm at the top of my game um, Nothing seems to be going wrong. It's just, wow, this is just getting better and better and better. It feels like a li my life is doing this whole thing, you know, the stepladder effect. So it's February 23rd, 1998. I still remember the day vividly because, uh, well, you're Michiganders, so when I preach elsewhere, I have to kind of help them visualize this, but this yellow thing in the sky kind of disappears for a while during our winter months. And especially here on the shoreline, you, it might even be more exasperated, but uh, the sun came out that morning. We had a fresh snowfall. So you know how it is when that snow, when the sun just hits uh, all the snow and it's just fresh and you have the delicate ice flowers on top. It looks like, wow, it's, a, it's just a field of rubies or diamonds. And it has this really effervescent, uh, just spectacular feel to it. So it feels mythic and it feels, wow, this is really cool. So we're going to church and and I remember walking into the church and it was cold, obviously. It's February and so everybody's kind of cherub, rosy cheek coming in from the 
the frost and they're all sitting and the lights are subdued much like it was here this morning and we're worshiping and it feels safe and it feels like wow God's going to do something really wonderful now I don't know how this happens but my text that morning was Genesis chapter 6 which is the whole account of the flood and I was waxing poetic about how if you do the original rendering of that word when it says that God's heart was filled with pain it doesn't just mean that he was like really upset and he put himself in timeout and he put planet earth in timeout and he says okay you ate come here the rest of you you know it didn't have that callous kind of casual sense it more had this feeling of of um of tremendous deep grief to the point where words are no longer accessible language becomes bankrupt and all that you have left is this real uh, guttural sobbing effect where you can't even get the words out because your, your, your body is racking, uh, being racked with sobs. And so I thought, wow, that's really incredible. I never saw that before. But when you break down some of those words in there with the Hebrew meaning, it, it gives this idea that God was so filled with pain that his heart literally broke open and it burst, and, and the waters, if you will, poetically came up from the deeps, and it, and it flooded the earth, and then perhaps for the first time in mankind's imagination, the skies, the canopy was ripped open, and, and God wept, and his tears just flooded the earth, and you have a whole civilization that perhaps couldn't even comprehend what it was like to rain. Most of the scientists that I worked with believed that there was a canopy in effect, and that when the flood came, especially from uh, up top, that it was something that was beyond comprehension because the canopy was in effect and so the radiation was uh, protected uh, from coming to the earth in the form that it is now and so mankind could live to be a millennia or 900, 800 years old. I don't know if I really want to live that long. That would really get tricky with healthcare and all those other issues, but you're living and you're living and you're living and that little lizard someday is going to become like this big giant, you know, uh, dinosaur and, and all these little, cre you know, they just grow and grow and it's like the land of the lost. If you've been a 70s kid growing up, you remember that TV show, you know, you got big giant carrots and all these other creatures running around. Everything just grows and grows and grows. And so you can just imagine, they're like, wow, what's happening here? And then this guy's building this ship for a hundred and some odd years, and he wants us to help him out, and he keeps preaching the same message of repent and yada, yada. And then all of a sudden, this, this thing happens. And so I'm waxing poetic. I'm doing my thing, and uh, in the back row of the church, it's fairly well packed. In fact, the seats look just like these. Uh, I'm, in the, I'm looking towards the back row of the church. I'm the only person that's on the platform, just like today. And this young uh, gentleman comes walking in through the back of the church, and uh, it's obvious that the, the seat has been saved uh, for him because the whole thing is kind of packed out. And so he makes his way person by person around everybody's knee, back row, left corner, and he sits down next to this pretty young gal. And, you know, if you're a casual observer, you're thinking, wow, this is like, uh, you know, either they're dating or they're engaged or they're married because there's a some, they are happy to see each other. She saved the seat. He puts his arm around her chair. She kind of comes up closer. They're both smiling back at me, and you think, well, they're probably married, and part of that's true. That's actually my wife, and that guy is my intern. Now, rewind the tape to the week leading up to that. I had three guys come into my office, and again, life is great for me. I do a date night with my wife every week, so I've got that box checked. I feel good about that. I'm responsible. I'm providing. I am, I am not verbally abused. I'm doing all the things that a good husband should do except be emotionally available to the person that you're actually married to. So I'm addicted to ministry. I'm doing stuff all over the place. I got plates spinning all the time. I'm using ministry to medicate my own misery, my own uh, trauma from earlier. 
And so this is perfect. It's a great scenario. And I don't even realize what's happening, but I'm so enmeshed in ministry because it's like this drug. And people actually applaud you because you're busy helping other people. Meanwhile, you're actually dying on the inside. And so it becomes, it's actually a drug, and it's intoxicating because then you get more successful, and people think you're more, and and you're the greatest, and blah, 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 and so your head just gets super big, and your ego over, you know, supersedes your humility, and then all of a sudden, in that moment of pride and hubris, everything just blows up in front of you. I had three guys that came to me, and... uh, over the course of a week, and the first, one of them was a pastor, and he says, I hate to tell you this, I says, I know you live at the church here, and you're always working, and my dad's always working, so you guys are just working around the clock, he says, but I'm telling you, when you're doing your church thing, uh, your wife is hooking up with your intern, and I'm just thinking, you know, um, I don't think that story really fits, it's like this shock thing, you know, when you get that phone call, and somebody tells you that your, your child has passed away, or your little kid, and you find out your parents are getting divorced, or you're a, a worker and you get called into the office and you've worked so many years at a company and they're like, well, we don't need you anymore. Um, I mean, it just, <gasps> the oxygen just got sucked out of the room and I became very angry and defensive and I just said, I think you've got the wrong guy. I think you got the story wrong. And so one guy, second guy comes in, they probably had a little conference and just said he's not, he's not listening. He's in total, complete denial, which is the first stage of grief. You just, you're in complete shock and denial. Second guy comes in, same thing. Uh, something's happening, you really need to, you know, circle back with your wife on this thing, and then the third guy comes in, and now I'm really attentive because I know his story. Uh, two youth pastors before me, his wife had connected with the youth pastor, and it, it just blew up his world to the extent that he actually um, went into uh, a mental home for a bit. So I knew his story, so I'm like, okay, now he's telling me, and I'm like, okay, I better really pay attention. So all this is in the back of my mind. I haven't had a chance to really process it or to really do anything with it, and then that happens. So notice what I did with this pulpit thing here, right? I always do this. And I did this at a, I was doing all these men's conferences. And every time I came up to the platform, I'd always stick this behind me. And it wasn't until this was actually this spring and, and winter. I was speaking around the country at the, all these men's conferences. And I finally figured out, you know why I'm putting that behind me? It's because the last time that was in front of me, that happened. So you're basically asking like a vet to go back to the battlefield and to relive the horror and the hell of that moment. You're actually asking an abuse victim to go back to the scene of the crime, to their worst nightmare. It's traumatic. And so what the enemy did, and if you don't believe in the devil, uh, hopefully you will believe in him after this story. But more than that, you'll believe in God and the grace of God that supersedes that. But this guy is ancient. He is well-versed in his craft. He's been around for a long, long time. If we believe Ezekiel and, and Isaiah, Um, how they essentially were trying to give us an idea of the origin of evil and the origin of this character we call Satan or Lucifer, whatever name you want to attach to him. This is a, a, a fallen angel who knows his craft, and he knows what buttons to push, and he knows how to knock you out just like that. So it was a perfect scenario. I don't know if he had a conference with his minions or whatever, not the yellow and blue, you know, overall things, but, uh, the lead guy was that, was Kevin too. Anyway, it's a whole other story. But, um, you know, you just have these moments where you're like, wow, what is going on here? And you just have this sense that this is just an ambush. I walked into an ambush because in five, actually a nanosecond, my ministry is done. Uh, arguably, my masculinity is destroyed. My mission is done. My message is no longer going to be heard. And when I walked off the pulpit that day, I have no clue how I, 
was able to peel myself off that platform. But I got off that platform, and I just said uh, to the pastor, I'm done. I'll never, ever speak again. And so I went into the business and put all my energies into that. People were begging me, dude, this is not normal. Most preachers don't get up on a Sunday morning and watch their wife hook up with their intern. It's just, it's not normal. And being a typical guy, I did the Monty Python Black Knight, you know, the king's trying to pass over the bridge, and the black knight is like, no, you will not pass, and I will fight you. And so the, the, you know, the king author figure is like, oh, good knight, you know, don't make me do what I have to do. And he keeps hacking off all his limbs, and finally he's limbless. And, you know, the British humor, all the blood's everywhere and all that stuff. And so, you know, he's just trying to bite the guy as he's going by because he's totally oblivious that he is limbless, and he is incredible pain, but he's just marching on and that's how I was I was like well you know it's a flesh wound and I'll just keep going and and it's not a big deal and people are like no you need to go deep with this thing because this will eat your lunch this this has the potential to destroy every relationship that you'll ever um, try and re-engage with so story goes on um, tremendously traumatic event and then I uh, get to a point where um, I get involved in another marriage, and uh, that went well for quite some time. But the problem with that type of wound is if that wound isn't healed, because there's a lie usually inside that wound, and the lie is when you go through something like that, uh, you can very easily believe, even though you know cognitively this is not correct, you can feel this, and the enemy knows that we mostly live in our feelings. We don't live what we know, because if we lived what we know, everybody would do the right thing. Most people, even a caveman, even somebody in a, in a, you know, pygmy culture knows what right and wrong is. You just don't kill people. You just, that's just wrong. There's a moral code that God has tattooed on our hearts. So we know these things, but we, we develop these feelings and these very strong emotions. And in that emotion, I believed and embraced this lie, even though I knew cognitively it wasn't true. And it was simply this, that you're unlovable and you'll never love again. So you put up walls. It's like a soldier coming back home, and people are trying to penetrate your inner world, your, your uh, wife or whomever or your children, and you can't access that part of your life because it's frozen and it's numb and it feels leprous, and you just don't want anything to do with it. So I'm on the mountain now, right? And I'm looking around, and I'm, I'm seeing that, wow, uh, there's a lot of broken people here. I mean, there's a bunch of us that have been through divorce, or abuse, or abandonment, or business failures, or whatever. We're just this uh, a group of guys and all these vets that were with us, because we always had a military detail every year, and they actually were the first people that shot straight with me and said, look, we know you've never been in actual combat, even though we're now in a demilitarized <laughs> zone, and there's all these factions. If you watch the film, you, you saw that. There's just It's a very difficult part of the world to actually do anything and let alone look for the ark because you have a local friendly neighborhood terrorist group the pkk that are killing the turks and they happen to do a lot of it around the mountain and on the mountain and so you don't want to become collateral damage so you're just kind of it's it's very tenuous every year that we go and they're like dude you got what we got and i was like what are you talking about i've never served in combat i mean i know we've had some crazy stuff happen here in the mountain hiding in ditches and all that stuff but i've never really been actually deliberately shot at or or been involved in actual combat and they're like no you've got that 2000 yard stare you're not home you're you're anywhere but here and so then i went into therapy for a bit and all these people were telling me well you got to find your home address and i'd be like that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. What is a psychobabble? And I always do the same thing. I'd pull out my driver's license, and I'd show them where my address was. I know where I live. I go home. This is where my mail comes. And they're like, no, no, you, 
You just don't get it. You're, you are emotionally vacant. The last place you want to live is inside. You're a good guy, and you want to do the right thing, but you are not in the moment. You're either 10 years ahead on your next trip or your next business or your next book or whatever, or you're beating yourself up over your past, but you're never right here because right here hurts too much. You don't want to think about right now because right now really doesn't feel really good, and so you want to get outside of the now. And what Jesus is basically doing is he's trying to get us all back into the moment because that's where the miracles happen. They don't happen way out there. They don't happen way back there, although God can go backwards and forwards in the timeline so you can actually heal parts of yourself, younger parts of yourself that were abused or were mistreated. He can go back in time because he's not limited to time, or he can go forward, but he does all the really good stuff right here, right now, in the exact moment. That's where the miracles happen. That's where the miraculous happens. So I've got all this information, and now all of a sudden the light bulbs are coming on, and the epiphanies are starting to happen. I'm like, wow, this is crazy. So you come to this point. We're all exiled kings. We're in a foreign country. Mine happened to be Ararat. We're all trying to climb this, this mountain, which in its translation in Turkish is Agrida, which means the painful mountain. I am climbing into my story. I'm looking for the ark. I'm trying to find this missing link between a lost antediluvian world and the present day, and I'm trying to become part of this process that would change world history, would change all theologies from archaeology to zoology and everything in between. I'm trying to change these things. I want to be a part of it, and the whole while God is saying, I'm putting you on this quest to find this ark because in the process you're going to find something a whole lot better. Your heart, frozen in trauma, buried under ice, I'm going to give you back your heart. I'm going to give you back the ability to feel. I'm going to take away your leprosy. I'm going to take away your shame. I'm going to give you the power and the courage to tell this story everywhere you go so you can wake up dragons. So you can live in the present so you don't have to be beating yourself up over something that happened back in 1998 and you keep replaying that movie and it's frozen and you can't access it and you can't jump back in your story because that part of your story is broken. And so every other part of your life becomes broken. So I go through a second divorce. And now I'm in a really desperate place because now I don't have any money either. So I went through a bankruptcy. I was a million net worth guy. And all these perfect storms happened, living in the Detroit area, trying to sell a home that basically got cut in half with its value over six months. All these things are just, it feels like Job. It's like a celestial combine is coming in. And woof, it's just, and I, I felt like he even told me that. He just says, look, you're going to go through a very difficult period in your life. You're going to lose all your money. You're going to lose your marriage. You'll probably lose your sanity for a little bit. you lose your home, which was happened. I lived in my vehicle for a couple years. And then he said, but there's two things that are going to remain. Your health, because I need you to climb, literally and figuratively, and the connection that you have with your children. And they're both exactly true. I have a fantastic relationship with my kids against all odds. I have my health. I can talk. I can speak. I can travel. I can do all these things. So all the important things in life I still have. And I have the gift of a story, a redeemed story, which is a powerful weapon in the hands of somebody that wants to use it for redemptive purposes. So I'm on the mountain, and all these guys are saying these things, and I begin to realize, you know what? This is what's happening here. I am basically like Bilbo Baggins, all right? I'm going to give you some hobbit hermeneutics this morning. I am Bilbo Baggins. I'm tall. I, don't, I have my handkerchief. It's in my pocket here. I put my jacket down. I'm on this adventure. This wizard shows up at my door and knocks and says, I'm going to take you on this grand adventure. Do you want to go on a little adventure? And so I'm going on this little adventure, and I'm wandering through the vagaries of Middle Earth. 
and he introduces me to all these dwarves. Everywhere I go, I look, and I just see, I see people that are stunted, not physically, but emotionally and spiritually, and they're, they're half of what they should be, or they are stunted images of their former greater selves, and they're all doing the same thing. They're just trying to find home. They're just trying to find their home address. They're just trying to get back to the lonely mountain. They're trying to get back their gold. They're trying to kill this dragon named fear. You've talked about that. And all these other things and these mind games that go on in your brain and you never get outside of your brain. And you can't sink down those 18 inches. So I talked about that in the, in the intro. I couldn't do 18 inches. So I've got to do 18,000 feet. I've got to do 18,000 miles because I can't internalize. So I'm always externalizing. Do more stuff. Be bigger, better, greater, resume, all that stuff. And then finally the whole thing just falls apart, and I realize that it's just about 18 inches. I had a guy interview me in Missouri like a week and a half ago. It was this big mega church thing, and he's like, so what's your next adventure? And he wanted me to give him a litany. I was like, you know what? Pretty much for the last two years, I've gone 18 inches. And it's been the longest, hardest, most fulfilling journey I could ever do in my entire life. It's the best journey of all because when you find home, when you defeat the dragon, when you get your heart back, you get your life back. The Bible talks about that, that the heart is the wellspring. Out of it comes life. The Greeks had a great construct for it. The, the, the heart is the captain of the ship. So most of us spend our, our lives in our brains, and the Egyptians have got this figured out. When they go through the embalming process, this has been going on for millennia, they throw the brain away. And they embalm the body, and they specifically embalm the heart because I think that they understand that eternity, as Ecclesiastes talks about, eternity lives inside that heart or the spirit, if you want. That's the part that lives on and on, and it's the truest part of who you are. It's the part that's unmasked. It's the face that you were born with. It's the name that you're looking for your whole life. It's not the name that your parents gave you. It's who you really are. It's what you become when you pass the veil and you get into eternity. That's who you really are. And for the lucky few of us, we get to die before we die. I got to lose everything to find one thing so that now I can actually live a little slice. You're talking about pie slices. This is a little slice of heaven that you can have here on earth. Part of you is going to die in that process. I don't know that guy. So I'm listening to the tape in uh, July 7th of 2013. I'm getting ready to go on the mountain. I'm listening to the tape. And I, I don't know how I figured this tape thing out because it's, you know, it's a cassette tape. Anybody know what that is? We actually found one in the ark. It's an ancient piece of technology. My 12-year-old son is like, what is that, Dad? How does it I never seen one of those before. Yeah, you plug it in. So I anyway, I'm moving my stuff from my parents' house. I got 12 boxes. Boy, that's, this story is immersed in, symbol, in, in symbols. And I've got 12 boxes left. And I felt like God just said, you need to open that box. Is in that box. Is another box. Is another box. And in that box, I need you to listen to something. And in that box is that sermon tape that I forgot that I had kept from 1998. I put it in the cassette player. I'm driving from Lansing uh, actually, I'm driving from Grand Rapids to Lansing, where my folks' place is. I plug it in, and I'm listening to this guy, and I'm like, man, that guy sounds familiar. I know it's me, but it's a part of me that just feels like I, I don't even know who that person is anymore. And so he's preaching, and he's talking about the ark story, and little did I know at that point that I would be involved in the quest for the actual ark. And then he gets further and further along in his story, and then it feels like Somebody's just grabbing this guy's throat, and he's just got him clamped, and you could feel the cadence of the voice falter, 
and you could feel the voice become thick with emotion, and you can feel that this guy is being tortured with trauma. I can hear it, and I can see it at the same time. And in that moment, for those of you that have studied psychology, this is legit, and a lot of people call it flashbacks, and we make movies about it, and we poke fun about it. Um, but it's real. I had a Proustian involuntary memory relapse, and hearing that voice and listening to that cassette tape brought me right back to February 23rd, 1998. But what happened in that moment would take too long to describe, but it became a poetic vision that unfolded itself into hundreds and hundreds of pages of material I wrote for 500 days. It's a poetic vision, and it's kind of a Middle-earth, Narnia, John Milton, Paradise Lost, uh, Paradiso, Inferno, Dante, Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress, but it's all these different time dimensions that are just intermingling itself. And anyway, this character came out of the side of God. It was like pure fire, just carved out of sunlight. It's almost like wisdom uh, that, that Solomon was trying to describe in the first chapters, nine chapters of Proverbs, where he just got tired of talking about wisdom, so he incarnated or he, he personified wisdom into lady wisdom. And she's got a beautiful home with seven pillars, and she's trying to invite everybody that she can into this home because across the street is the dame of folly, the witch of the underworld the whore of the underworld, and she breaks apart every relationship, and she spews out sexual morality on every person on the planet, but across the street is this wise, regal, statuesque, womanly figure that's trying to invite all these people in to be sane, to find wholeness, to find peace and joy and love in its purest form. And this character comes out of God's side, and he just breathes into it, almost like Eve coming out of Adam, and so she dances across this whole scene, and I see her in this picture, and I see her dancing with not just me, but with those two, which I wouldn't do because my grace, my concept of grace is for me, not for them. And then I have to be reminded if I've ever looked at another woman lustfully other than my wife, I also am an adulterer. I'm no better than that guy in the pew. If I have ever thought of, if I have ever hated somebody, I am a murderer. I'm not making this up. These are the words of Christ. You can read it in the Gospels if you'd like. And so then I get to this point where I'm like, man, I've got I've to let grace come in. I've got to let this beautiful character come into my life because she's this, this lover, this part of God that's only attracted to my imperfections. There's this just part of God, and there's this merciful part of God, but there's also this other part of God that no other religion has, and it's this part of God that runs towards your imperfection and embraces that and makes you whole. So what happens at the end of the Hobbit story? <laughs> what happens at the end of my story is you get back home. You wake up the dragon. You live the memory. You realize that to get to the future, it runs through the past, but it happens in the present moment. And so you're rewinding the tape, and you're allowing God to take you back to that day that the dragon showed up. And then together, love conquers that dragon. Love is stronger than fear. Grace is stronger than law. And so all these wonderful things start happening, and then you find that you get your mountain back, and you become the king or the queen under the mountain, and you get all the gold back. You get your memories back, and they're restored, and you can access rooms that were locked, and you can get out of rooms that you want to get out of because now you've got the golden key. You've got Christ who's working inside and outside, and he's giving you back your story, and he's allowing you to get back into your own story so you don't feel like you're outside your story. And then you can live on and you can have this incredible second half of life or this second experience in life. I think that's what we call being born again. 
I think that's what we're talking. I think what we're talking about here is resurrection, and it's a continual, perpetual, cyclical motion where every day you're becoming dead to yourself, and you're becoming more alive in Christ. To live is Christ. And so what, I, what are we talking about here? I'm going to close with this, with pain. Why do, I, why do I want you to go back to that dragon? Why do I want you to go back to that memory, to look for your ark? I want you to go back because I don't know how this works, but your purpose, the reason why you are born is encrypted inside your pain. My destiny now has everything to do with February 23rd, 1990. If that day didn't happen, today wouldn't happen. It's a Joseph moment. It's a Genesis chapter 45 moment where Joseph can get in front of his brothers and say to them, you did not send me to Egypt. And they're all thinking, this guy's nuts. I mean, we don't even recognize him. He looks like this Egyptian guy. Steve Martin thing. Who is this guy? He's saying basically, look, you you were part of a process. You had to put me into slavery. You had to have a death wish on my life. I had to go through all this prison experience because that was the only way that I could be sprung from the prison through this pit into the palace. It's the only way that it could have happened. So when those bad things happen, what am I saying to you is make pain your friend. Jesus said to Judas, when he came into the garden, he was going to betray him with the kiss. He said, friend, come and do what you have been destined to do. Come and do what you must do. But he said, friend, most of us treat pain as the enemy. And it's not. Here's what would have happened. Gollum is this character, right? Hobbit hermeneutics here. So Gollum is this character. Everybody has a chance to kill this vile disgusting, former hobbit-like creature that's slithery and slimy. He's lived to be 500 years old. He's way, he, he's like this wraith. He's just this slimy, loathful creature. He's addicted to this ring, which a lot of addicts, when they watch that film, they're like, wow, that's me. I mean, I'm a split personality. I got Smeagol and Gollum, you know. My precious, you know, all these different things are coming in and out. The good, the bad, the good, the bad. They're talking to each other all the time. Do the right thing. Do the bad thing. Kill him. Keep him alive. And so this creature is staying alive. He's staying alive. The elves couldn't kill him. The hobbits couldn't kill him. The dwarves couldn't kill him. The men, the wizards, he's alive. And then Gandalf has this moment of epiphany in the minds of Mori, and he said, it was not only pity that stayed the hand of Bilbo from killing him, but I feel in my heart that Gollum will do a great good in the end. Whether for good or evil, he has a part to play. And so you know how the story develops on Mount Doom, and they've got to get rid of this ring, and it's Frodo now, the nephew of Bilbo that's been entrusted with this. But he can't get rid of this ring. It's an addiction. It's, it's a, a thorn in his mind. It's a thorn in his flesh. It's a splinter in his mind. He just can't get rid of this thing. And so then Gollum reenters the story and bites off the finger, and the ring goes down into Mount Doom. But Gollum was saved the whole time. So here's what I'm trying to tell you is Gollum was the only character in that whole story that could get Frodo and Samwise into Mordor. He's the only person that knew how to get into this place of evil to destroy this ring. Your pain, this is heavy stuff. Think about it. It's like Arnold. Think about it later. Your pain may be the only guy that can get you your heart back. Don't kill or medicate or numb your pain. If you kill the golem in your life, this vile thing, you may be killing the only thing that's going to show you the way out and get your heart back. I don't understand how it works. I'm talking about the cross here, if you will, but that's how pain works. So I want to encourage you this morning. Please, can I plead with you? 
don't do what I did. Don't medicate or numb your pain. Ask God to show you what it is through your pain, where your purpose is at in that pain, and allow that pain to be your guide instead of your enemy. Thank you.